0: Hey there, it's Martine. This week, we are going to be airing episodes from The Washington Post's latest investigative podcast, Broken Doors. The series focuses on the use of no-knock warrants in the criminal justice system and what happens when accountability fails at every level. The series wrapped up earlier this year. So if you've already listened or are just curious about news that's happened regarding no-knock warrants and the cases the podcast covers, we also have an episode out now that gives listeners a comprehensive update. It aired on Monday, so take a look at that. We'll also put a link to the episode in our show notes and at postreports.com. And now, the first episode of Broken Doors. It's called That's What You Get. And just a warning, this episode contains explicit language and descriptions of violence. Okay, here's the show.
1: So, do you want to take us through to where you were?
2: I'm kind of scared. (laughs) Let me look. Come on. I don't think I got lights, though. Nope, the light's not working here. But this is where I was.
1: Benji Edwards is leading me through his childhood home. It was built by his mom and dad in the 1960s. We're in a small town in Mississippi, in the heart of the Bible Belt. It's about two hours from Birmingham.
2: I grew up right here. My bedroom is that last door right there to the, to the left.
1: I came here to this town, Smithville, to meet Benji after I learned what happened to him. He warned me this house was in rough condition.
2: The ceilings are starting to fall in and everything. Now it's in bad shape. It was in bad shape then, but it was livable, you know.
1: There's a noticeable dent on the front door and a tarp covered the roof. Mosquito netting was tacked up on one of the windows and the mint green siding was caked with dirt. It was kind of cramped growing up here with his five siblings. His family eventually moved out, but Benji had spent his whole life here until a couple years ago. The repairs were hard, but it was the memories of what happened here that made it too difficult to stay.
2: Let's look down this hall.
1: As we walk through the house, Benji slows down.
2: So here's the house.
1: and... He's wiry and about six feet tall. And he kind of ducks his head even when there's plenty of room to get through a doorway. As we approach his old bedroom, he freezes.
2: I was in this room here. I was in that bed. That's the exact bed.
1: He won't walk into the room. Only the tips of his fingers go through the doorway as he gestures. And was it, it was cold outside?
2: Yes, it was cold. It was in November and it was real cold. And I... I had no shoes, no shirt on.
1: This is where he was sleeping on November 15th, 2014. He was tired. Benji would have been 53, working long hours at a furniture factory and struggling to make ends meet. Benji's friend Eva and her kids were staying with him at the time. He had gone to bed, but the kids were watching a movie around 9.30 p.m. in the living room. It seemed like just another quiet Saturday night. Out of nowhere, there was a huge boom at the front door.
2: This door right there is where the batting ram hit. This door flew open. All of this was knocked off.
1: No one knew what was happening.
2: Okay, those kids were right here. On the floor, sitting in front of this love seat right here, two teenagers.
1: The kids were right by the front door in the living room. Benji heard the noise all the way in the back of the house.
2: And the bang is what woke me up. And then I kept sitting there trying to, you know, focus and understand what it was, but I never heard police or nothing like that.
1: And that's when they burst through the bedroom. It was the Monroe County Sheriff's Office.
2: And they came and put me in the floor right there, put the gun in my head and stuff, and told me that uh, they had a search warrant to search my property. I was already in cuffs when they told me about the warrant. Three of them tore this room up. All my drawers were pulled out and thrown in the floor. My bed was turned upside down. And another two officers, one was in the hallway... And one was in the kitchen. They were pulling the paneling from the wall, looking behind the paneling. They were in the cabinets, pulling down stuff, looking behind the cabinets.
1: Benji said there was about $15 worth of cocaine loose on a dresser. He said it belonged to a friend. Deputies found that pretty quickly, but he says they were also yelling about cash.
2: You know, they kept, that's what they kept hollering. Where's the money? Where's the money? Where's the money? Where's the money?
1: Benji, meanwhile, asked to see a search warrant. But he says the sheriff and deputies standing in his living room didn't respond.
2: As I started asking questions, they got quieter and quieter and quieter.
1: And you at some point asked to see the warrant?
2: I asked to see the warrant while I was on the floor.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. And what'd they say? Never said a word.
1: Benji says they didn't leave a copy of the warrant, which is something police are supposed to do. He never saw the search warrant until I shared it with him last summer while we sat around his kitchen table. I found it when I was sifting through hundreds of documents related to drug raids in Monroe County. It's why I had called Benji in the first place, because what I saw on the records was so unusual. But that wasn't the worst of it.
2: You'd think you would think you know how do I tell this if I I mean you know ain't nobody gonna bleed it you know you you'd have to see it you'd have to live through it because it's just something sound like it would be made up.
1: Indoors, a new investigative podcast from The Washington Post.
3: I'm Jen Abelson, and I'm here with my colleague, Nicole Dunca. Jen and I are investigative reporters. And what Jen described there, that unusual warrant, as we reported this out, we've seen what, hundreds of them? so many examples of questionable no-knock warrants. This is a series looking at how easy it is to carry out one of the most intrusive and
1: dangerous forms of policing, and what happens when accountability is flawed at every level.
4: The threshold for a no-knock warrant is very high. You're invading somebody's home, and it's easy for that to go
3: strike We began this investigation after Louisville police killed a young black woman during a botched raid 2 years ago. Taylor. Taylor. Brianna Taylor's death sparked a national reckoning over these warrants. She didn't deserve that, so I can't give up. I can't walk away. In the coming episodes, we're
1: going to explore the reality of how no knock warrants are used in the American justice system.
4: I know they can have a probable cause. Probable cause don't mean shit in Amherst, Mississippi.
3: We'll take you from a sheriff's department in a rural community to a large urban police department. That well, I means it summed it up into they shot the wrong person. We'll find out what it means
1: when judges approve warrants haphazardly and quickly, sometimes just by tapping the screen of their phones.
2: What gets lost sometimes is the due process
3: in that speed. And will confront some of the people accused of abusing no-knocks. I, I want to know, did you... You know what you're doing? You're
5: interrogating me.
3: With a typical search warrant, police are supposed to knock a few times and announce, police, search warrant, open up the door. That's the standard practice. But with a
1: no-knock... Police say that they need the element of surprise, so they usually show up in the middle of the night and use a battering ram to force their way into your home.
3: No Knocks really started making national headlines during the last couple of years, but they've been around for decades.
5: America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse.
1: Soon after he took office, President Richard Nixon seized on the public's growing fear of crime to wage a war on drugs with new, aggressive policing. And no-knocks were a key part of that.
5: In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new, all-out offensive. I've asked the Congress to provide the legislative authority and the funds to fuel this kind of an offensive
3: there were awful consequences almost immediately after police began using no-knocks across the country. They often targeted people of color and happened in poor neighborhoods. Police
1: leaders have continued to defend these high-risk searches, saying they're not as widely used as people think. Like Patrick Yeos, the president of the Fraternal Order of Police, the country's largest police union,
5: if there is probable cause for a warrant and there's a need to be able to, to execute that warrant, there may be instances in, in the circumstances around that where officer safety with the element of surprise may be to an advantage.
3: This controversial tactic has gone before the U.S. Supreme Court several times. They've ruled no-knock should only be used in certain circumstances. And officers are supposed to justify that a suspect is dangerous or could destroy evidence if police knock and announce themselves but that isn't always the case
1: and the tragedies haven't stopped even in communities that have tried to limit the use of no-knocks.
4: no knocks no.
3: no. 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 so we started asking how often are these kinds of warrants used and why How often are they actually necessary? Exactly how many people have died because of them? And what does it mean for the survivors left behind? We tried to understand
1: the scope of these tragedies in recent years. We did that by starting with this database The Post has of every fatal police shooting since 2015. And we started there because we thought it could help identify all the fatalities involving no-knock warrants. But
3: it was a lot harder than we thought. We had no clue how difficult this task would be. Some courts sealed the search warrants and others didn't keep the records. We couldn't figure out definitively how many deaths involved no-knocks. Most police departments don't keep track of them. And we couldn't find anyone
1: on a state or federal level who has collected this information over the last several years.
3: So we tried to find search warrants in lawsuits involving no-knock raids. And we also began reaching out to survivors across the country. In so
1: many cases where
3: people were hurt or killed,
1: we learned just how little surveillance and information police actually needed to get a no-knock warrant.
3: Sometimes they didn't know the names of the suspects or whether children lived in the targeted homes. Or they didn't even have the right address. It was kind of unreal to see
1: how low the bar was to get a no-knock, especially in places like Monroe County, Mississippi. That's where I found Benji Edwards and that no-knock warrant that just didn't add up. And pretty quickly, we started to uncover that in Monroe County, no-knock raids were the rule rather than the exception.
3: Jen went to Mississippi to meet with Benji and report on this one sheriff's office. From time to time, she'd update me on what she found. But no matter how many times I've heard Jen go through what happened, I've asked myself, what was going on in Monroe County? And this is where Jen is going to start for these first three episodes. After the break... We're going to step into
1: this world where secrets and drugs and money collided, revealing so much about what can go wrong with no-knocks.
2: Ain't nobody going to bleed it. You know, you'd have to see it. You'd have to live through it. Because it's just something sound like it would be made up.
1: A lot of Monroe County is rural and poor. There aren't many big businesses around here, and some towns are really tiny. There are less than a thousand people in Smithville where Benji Edwards lives. Benji told us he's felt targeted as a black man in Monroe County, especially by law enforcement. Nearly a third of the county is black, and there are some areas that are pretty segregated on Scribner Lake Road toward Mississippi 25 South, then turn left onto Mississippi 25 North. I ended up spending a couple of weeks here in June and August last year with audio producer Rena Flores.
3: Um, it's a slight right okay. exit.
1: We noticed these sheriff's trucks everywhere, at the gas station, the Dollar General. Many of the communities are so small that they don't have a local police force. That means the sheriff's office is the primary law enforcement around here. They have about a few dozen deputies for a county with roughly 35,000 people. And everyone we spoke to told us they had a lot of power. So yeah, these are the cars I've been seeing all over the county, these white pickup trucks emblazoned with yellow and black sheriff and sheriff's star. So many of the people we talked to told us about problems with the sheriff's office. And they all warned us to be careful.
4: You ladies stay safe. Yeah, you too. And stay out of trouble. You too. And know that now, I'm serious.
1: Everyone tells us to stay safe. got a chance to meet. I'm glad I found you. Yes. I feel like you have a really important story to tell. Um, Benji's childhood home, the one that got raided in 2014, is just a few feet away from where he lives now in a mobile home. So he can't escape what happened that night. It's been more than seven years, but there's a constant reminder outside his front window each time he pulls into his dirt driveway, every night he goes to sleep.
2: You know, if I heard noises, I you know, I'm thinking, well, you know, they out there looking around. You know, it just kind of made me paranoid and all kind of things.
1: When I first met Benji in person, I was sitting with him at his kitchen table with Rena. I had brought a manila folder filled with documents from his case. And again, the reason I had reached out to Benji was because I had found a no-knock warrant with his name on it. But outside of that, there was so much about it that didn't make any sense to me. So you didn't get to see the search warrant?
2: No, I never seen it, still haven't.
1: I had asked Monroe County for every search warrant involving drug raids over several years. I didn't get what I asked for, but they gave me some records and that's where I found Benji's warrant. So there are three parts to any search warrant. There's an affidavit, the written statement swearing everything is true, then there's the search warrant, and last, the return. That's where they list all the evidence. In Benji's case, the affidavit wasn't even signed by the person who requested the warrant, the head narcotics officer, Deputy Eric Sloan. And the warrant return was a mess. It didn't have the date of the search, and this evidence log didn't list everything the sheriff's office had seized. I have a copy. Have you ever seen the affidavit that was written out? No. None of it. Let me get it. By the time I got to Benji's warrant, I'd seen hundreds of these records from across the country. Police asking for no-knock warrants are supposed to justify the risk. So they often use confidential informants, CIs, to find out details about whether the suspect is dangerous, like if they have a gun. And they also have the CIs make controlled drug buys with marked money. That's when the bills have their serial numbers recorded. Police watch the property, take photographs, and run background checks of people living there. But I repeatedly discovered warrants approved with very little information. In Benji's case, there seemed to be Zero police surveillance of his house. As I handed him the court records, he laughed nervously and kept repeating he'd never seen them. It was after 9 p.m., and the kitchen was kind of dim.
2: Would you hit that switch right there, the second one?
1: He couldn't read the tiny print on the affidavit, so I turned on another light. There you go. Do you want me to read it, or do
2: you... I'll oh, read. Start right here?
1: Start right here, yeah.
2: That within the past 72 hours, a confidential source contacted Sheriff Cecil Cantrell with the Monroe County's Sheriff's Department and stated that Benji Edwards was selling crack cocaine from his residence. A confidential source saw approximately half ounce of cocaine at the residence of Benji Edwards within the last 72 hours.
1: There were just two sentences that detailed the reasons why the sheriff's office broke down his door. He put the warrant down on the kitchen table and shook his head.
2: It was a shock because, you know, if I was selling drugs, I must have been the worst drug dealer it was in the world because I had nothing. You know what I'm saying? Couldn't barely pay my bills. They were behind.
1: During this year of reporting on No Knox, I'd heard how people like Benji felt so unmoored after surviving one of these raids. He still wondered whether it was real. And there I was, some stranger sitting at his dinner table, making it real with my stacks of paper. The most striking part of the warrant was that it relied on a single confidential source who directly contacted Sheriff Cecil Cantrell. That's not something you see very often. And this wasn't even a confidential informant, someone who has a formal relationship with the police and typically buys drugs for narcotics investigations. This just sounded like some guy who contacted the sheriff and said he saw something. And Benji told me something that directly contradicted the official police narrative. Or what little there was of it in the warrant.
2: I mean, nobody was in my house within the 72 hours. Nobody, absolutely, but me and her and the kids.
1: Two kids and the woman who was staying with him, Eva York. She came to Benji's after getting into a fight with her boyfriend His name is Joe Wade Jr. It's important to know they're both white, and Joe, he didn't like that Eva went to Benji's. So Joe decided to enlist some help and made a call to the sheriff. How did you find out who the confidential source was?
2: Well, he told me. So he just made up this wild story, I guess, and he hadn't been in my house. In two or three years.
1: Benji and Joe had actually known each other for a while and had mutual friends. Sometime after the raid, police ended up interviewing Joe and Eva. I got the actual recordings from a local police department through public records requests.
5: All right, today's date is May the 28th, 2015. It is 103 p.m.
1: And that's where the blank spaces on that no-knock warrant began to fill in.
5: Detective Long here at the Amherst Police Department, along with, state your name, sir? Joseph Wade.
1: Here's a police detective interviewing Joe. Where does
5: this all begin? In your, in your mind, where does this all begin? OK, I was living in Alabama. Me and my girlfriend, Eva York, at the time, um, had been fighting over the weekend. She had left and uh, went to Benji Edwards' house. And
1: her- Joe said that on that quiet Saturday night, he talked to Eva and threatened to call the cops on Benji.
5: I called her and told her that she needed to leave and take her kids with her, or I was gonna call Cecil Cantrell and tell him that uh, Benji's selling drugs and I didn't want them kids down there, uh, around all that, and she refused to leave. So I called Cecil and I told him the deal. Uh, I'd currently bought drugs from Benji before, uh, a year or so passed ago. and I knew where he kept his drugs out. I knew he had a firearm and he was a convicted felon. Um, All right, let's, let's stop here just a second. Now, you said you bought from him before. And mm-hmm. this is in the past or recent? No, uh, it's, it's been over a year.
1: I want to point something out. Joe said he told Sheriff Cecil Cantrell that he got drugs from Benji about a year ago. That conflicts with what was written on the affidavit. That the confidential source saw drugs in Benji's home within the last 72 hours. And remember, Benji also said no one visited his house during this time. Besides the sheriff, Joe contacted someone else that night, Eva's son. And this is how Eva explained it to the police. We was sitting there watching a movie at Benji's about bedtime. He had sent a, a Joe had sent a recording to my son, what you going to do when they come for you? We didn't think nothing of it. What
5: you mean we? the song? Yeah. Okay.
1: Okay, next, From the thing I kn- thing. Yeah, next thing I know, the door gets busted in. Joe told police he texted Benji after the raid and bragged that he was the one who put him behind bars.
5: No, I texted him on the phone and, uh, I got kind of nasty with him and I told him, you know, that's what you get messing with a, a white girl.
1: That's what you get messing with a white girl. And Joe was confident the sheriff had delivered the message.
5: The weekend that you had the problem and she went over there, that's the weekend you called Cecil? Yes. Is that the same weekend that they went to the house? Yes. Okay. Do you know... Uh, You know that for a fact? I do know for a fact. How did you find that out? I called Cecil back and asked him if uh, he had took care of the matter, and he said he did, that they had busted in. They found the kids there and Eva, Mm -hmm. and they locked Benji up and charged him with possession of cocaine, uh, controlled substance, and possession of firearm by convicted felon.
1: Joe said he heard this directly from the sheriff.
5: What did you call him back to find out? Uh, It was about... An uh, hour later, I okay. was called him the same yeah. night. Right.
1: Benji told me the small amount of cocaine actually belonged to Eva. We tried to ask her about it, but we were never able to talk to her. You should know that she was never arrested or charged with any crime. Benji was initially locked up for about three days. When he got out, Benji saw those text messages Joe sent. Benji didn't still have the text but he said they were filled with racial slurs. He said Joe called him those same names when they saw each other a few months after the no-knock raid. They got into a fight at a nearby gas station. It got bad. Joe stabbed Benji, and Benji fired a gun at Joe. Both men ended up in the hospital, but only Benji landed in jail with an aggravated assault charge. He was locked up for months. Benji had a drug conviction in 2001, but this assault charge was the first violent offense I'd seen on his record. It was this fight that led me to the recordings of police interviewing Joe and Eva. I also tried contacting Joe, but like Eva, he didn't respond to the messages I left. I remember getting chills the first time I heard the police recording of Joe's interview. It was extraordinary for me to listen to, to hear so clearly how easy it was for Joe to set into motion one of the most aggressive and intrusive policing tactics. Like I said, I've read through hundreds of warrants, but I'd never seen anything like this. A no knock raid based simply on a call to the sheriff. Like, Joe is just asking for a favor to borrow a power drill or something. And it made me wonder just how many knocks have been used and abused in this so-called war on drugs.
2: They was just doing this, and we weren't the only ones. They did this to a lot of people. You know, and, I, and like I said, I confronted them, and they said, do you think we just go to people's house and we don't know? I said, okay, where's my half-ounce at then? You know, that kind of left them speechless.
1: For all the problems leading up to the raid, there were just as many disturbing details about what happened afterwards. Benji told us deputies found that small amount of cocaine, but they didn't list any drugs in the warrant return. That's the evidence log. The things they did list? His father's old revolver. And two cars from his front lawn, which didn't even belong to Benji. And remember, the deputies had been asking about money. They took all of his cash. All $96 of it. About $50 in bills in his wallet. And the rest was loose change. Mostly silver dollars he'd been saving in a glass jar in his bedroom. Everything that started the night of the no knock raid changed his life. After he was arrested after that fight with Joe, Benji was denied bond. From what I've seen in court records, it looks like that denial was tied to the no knock raid. But here's the thing Benji had not been indicted on any charges from the raid. A judge noted that very fact when he finally let Benji go. But by that point, he had been sitting behind bars for eight months.
2: Now I got the papers over there that I was not charged with the drug charge because they didn't indict me till way on down the line.
1: During all that time in jail, Benji lost his job and went further into debt. I have tried more than once to get an answer for why he was held for that long without an indictment. The last time I tried was earlier this year. I asked a court clerk to track down Benji's file. She emailed me saying that she had the records on her desk, but after she took a lunch break, she said, quote, the file was gone. I looked at my screen in disbelief. Hours later, the very same day, I got a call from Benji telling me, he'd been pulled over by local police. Something about a tag light. Hello? Hey, Benji. Hey. (laughs) So take me from the beginning. I was worried, so I started recording.
4: I I mean, you know, and I was polite, I hadn't done nothing or anything. And, you know, I just wanted you to see exactly what goes on. You know, I was a black guy in an old truck like this. And... Probably the only reason I got out of it without going to jail or anything like that, which I haven't done anything, was because he heard you say, okay, I'm going to record this.
1: I have no way of knowing whether that was a coincidence, that he was stopped the same day I asked for the records, which apparently disappeared from the clerk's desk. What I do know is, is that from the time of the no-knock raid in 2014, it actually took two years for Benji to get indicted on gun and drug charges from that raid. Those charges eventually got dropped after he agreed to plead guilty to the assault charge from that fight with Joe. Benji got probation for that. Even now... Benji struggles to understand why it all happened. Why police needed to break down his door and put his life in danger, as well as the lives of Eva and her kids.
2: You know why? I haven't given them any trouble whatsoever. I've owned up to everything I ever done. (laughs) You know, I mean, so why? I mean, I don't understand. For that little old house, they probably had seven police cars. And a narcotic agent van pulled in the yard. Why that many for just little old me?
1: And I wanted to know how many other times had this happened? Because here's the other thing. Sheriff Cecil Cantrell didn't just take the call from Joe Wade. He actually showed up to Benji's house on the night of the raid. This is the top law enforcement officer showing up on a Saturday night, all because of a phone call.
2: Cecil was there, he came in looking through there, looking through there. And I I really think they would, really thought they was gonna find a lot of money and a lot of drugs. I think that's what the guy told them.
1: We would learn that the sheriff showed up to a lot of drug raids. And he made sure that everyone else knew about them too.
0: 53-year-old Benji Edwards was arrested as a result of an ongoing investigation with the Monroe County Sheriff's Department. Deputies say Edwards faces charges of possession of crack cocaine with intent to distribute and possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. He's being-
1: when I was in Monroe County, everybody told me the same thing. Sheriff Cantrell was a fixture. Here's what I could piece together about who this guy was, where he came from, and why Cecil Cantrell wielded so much power in Monroe County. Sheriff Cantrell is a white man and had worked as a longtime judge at a lower county court. He never attended law school, but that isn't necessary in some local courts in Mississippi. After more than 20 years on the bench, Cecil Cantrell set his eyes on the sheriff's office. He had never held a job in law enforcement either. He ran as a Democrat for sheriff. He lost the first two elections and then sued the county for voter fraud. The county settled that case. And then Cecil Cantrell finally sailed into office in 2012 after his third try. He had campaigned on cleaning up the drug problem in Monroe County, and stayed laser-focused as sheriff.
4: Monroe County tonight, more than 400 people are wanted for what Sheriff Cecil Cantrell is calling a historic roundup of
5: offenders. That's one reason our county's got much safer, because we are after the drug dealers.
1: Sheriff Cantrell had white hair slicked back and a toothy grin. He'd put extra sheriff's patches on his uniform, and he was constantly on the nightly news talking about his drug busts.
2: If you fool with drugs in Monroe County, you're going to pay the penalty of it. If you fool with them and keep fooling with them,
5: you're going to to be in jail.
1: Like many other rural communities in America, Monroe County was struggling with drug problems. But if you watch all these news clips, you can see the spectacle of what Sheriff Cantrell was doing. Not only was he hammering home his message in interviews, he was also paying close attention to how it all looked. I talked to a woman who handled public relations for the sheriff's office. Her name is Tanya Willems. And Tanya told me that Sheriff Cantrell scolded her if she didn't arrange the money seized from drug busts in a certain way for the television cameras.
4: All the money had to be spread out, Mm -hmm. you know, to look like, you know, it was a huge amount of money. You had to lay it, like, he'd throw a fit if you didn't spread the money out, if you had, like, the money bunched up, or he would say, you know, to spread it out and make it look, you know, like it was a lot. There
1: was a lot to unravel, in Monroe County. We spent a long time investigating the alleged corruption here and how no-knock warrants enabled it. We'd learn about accusations of extortion, theft, and sexual misconduct lodged against the Sheriff's Office and Narcotics Unit. And we'd explore the seemingly limitless power to carry out these no-knock raids by Sheriff Cantrell and his head narcotics officer, Eric Sloan. He's the deputy who asked a judge to sign off on the warrant for Benji's house. But Benji's story was just the beginning. And I was starting to piece together how it connected to other questionable raids. Benji told me he knows he's one of the lucky ones.
2: You know, it kind of, you know, shook me a little bit. I'm going to say more than shook me.
1: And he still thinks about how things could have ended differently if those two white kids hadn't been sitting in his living room. At the time and then afterward, knowing that there were teenagers in that front room, like, what what do you think about that?
2: Well, you know, that bothered me, you know, that they just run over top of them and, you know, had not been for them or the people there, you know, I don't know what they might have done. You know, maybe they saved my life. I don't know.
1: Benji was still locked up at the Monroe County Jail in 2015 when he learned about another drug raid in the middle of the night. It was another no-knock, not too far away, where a man named Ricky Keaton lived.
2: You know, it's hard to forget, and I, I think about it quite a bit, you know, and and you know, I still wonder, you know, if 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 they come to do the same to me as they did Keaton.
1: On the next episode, what happened to Ricky Keaton? Benji, you're there. Hello. Hey, so Benji, you just called. What what's going on right now?
4: Yeah, they they I guess you he heard me. They they pulled me over some young guy and said, I didn't have a tag light. And I drove this truck for seven years, exactly like it is through Alabama, through everywhere. They, I guess he heard me on the, on the phone call with you and they just let me go.
0: Broken Doors is hosted by Jen Abelson and Nicole Dunca. It's produced by Rena Flores, Sabi Robinson, and Lena Muhammad. It's edited by Renita Jablonski and David Fallis, with additional editing by Theo Balcom and Sarah Childress. Original music, sound design, mixing, and theme by Ted Muldoon. All the episodes in the series are out now. To listen and subscribe, go to WashingtonPost.com slash Broken Doors or your favorite podcast app. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back with more stories from The Washington Post.